Hey, this is Nathan. We're going to just jump right into this episode, but before we do, I need to let you know that some of the content in this one could be triggering, and we don't want to catch you off guard. So take care as you listen, and here we go. Would you like to use your name, or would you rather be anonymous? Oh, you can still use my name. My name is Mr. Williams, Mr. Leroy Williams. Mr. Leroy Williams, okay, mm-hmm. great to meet you. Okay, well, let's, let's start with uh, how, how long have you lived in Colorado? 22 years. 22 years now? And where, where were you before that? Basically in New York. In New York? Mm-hmm. Okay. And what uh, what prompted the move to Denver? 9-11. <laughs> Had to move away from that. Got it. Um, and and uh, what were you doing when you left? Oh, I was working New York Stock Exchange, working in the kitchen as a prep. I mean, people don't know what it's like to be with block away and all of a sudden you look up and see a plane hitting a building. Were you outside? I was outside. I got off the train. I was going to work. I got off the train at Fulton Street, which is like two or three blocks from Wall Street. So I got a block away when this happened. And when I looked up and saw everything falling, you know, we just started running and helping people. We didn't know what was happening. You know, something like that so close to you and and all this debris and stuff and you don't know what's happening running for your dear life. You know, I mean, mentally, you can't let certain things go. You know, things will come back to your mind, but I'm just glad and thank God that I can hold myself together. <laughs> you know, you never know what, you know, comes out of situations like that. Think about the way the world is and the way that the world could be. All of our systems are interrelated and interdependent multiple pathways for a common purpose. We're looking at a human being and there's life story. 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 Hey, this is what's going on. An Elevated Denver starts now. The interviews that you're going to hear in this episode were recorded in a private office in the St. Francis Center. The two men who agreed to talk with me know and trust Graydon, who you met in the last episode. And Graydon was careful to ask them days in advance in a way that they would not feel any pressure to say yes. But when Graydon told them what Elevated Denver is trying to do, they agreed to share their stories with me. And with you. We'll continue now with Mr. Williams. The struggle that I'm in right now it has been at least a good eight years. And so can you, can you tell me uh, a little bit about what the struggle is? Basically, getting proper service for apartment. The jobs has been up and down, but, you know, that's, that's panning out pretty good right now. Prices have gone up, so it's a struggle with whatever you're making. It seems like you're forced to work two jobs in order to survive in the state of Colorado. Basically, right now I am working in a restaurant cooking, but my job of preference is electrician and plumbing. Well, let's, uh, let's take a step back if we can. can. Can you tell me about kind of your childhood? Oh, it was ten of us, five boys, five girls. It was fun. I really enjoyed it coming up. <laughs> we watched our Superman, we watched Batman, Popeye. Me and my brothers and sisters had a lot of fun coming up. I didn't get many details about what happened from there, but when he got to Denver, Mr. Williams was in and out of a few relationships, 
and he had a son, and he became his son's primary caretaker, but he did not have stable housing. Being a single parent, with my child in school and all, bouncing around on employment, how am I gonna deal with this? You know, where if I have to leave the job every time to go up to the school. There was times where, yeah, me and my son was homeless together, yes. We stayed at the shelter. Didn't really stay at other people's house because I didn't really want to bounce around with him. And so now he's he's got a job in the team. Oh, his own yes, place he, too? yes, he does. That's great. Mm -hmm. did, did he continue through school? Then? Yes, he did. Had to continue to encourage him, and I'm glad that he did listen and achieve. And then I just I think that some listeners might have the question. Can you not stay with him? Yes, it's probably my pride why I haven't called him, <laughs> you know, because I have called him. And he tell me, you know, come on over here, Pop. You know, you're welcome anytime. You know, I have went to visit him, stayed a couple of nights. It might be just my pride to make me not want to continue to stay like that. I would love to, but it's my pride, I guess. You know, I'm doing everything I can to get out of this type of situation. And I advise anybody in the world to try not to get into a homeless situation where they have to depend on somebody else because it's not a strong foundation, it's not good. You know, when you can stand on your own two feet and do what you want to do for yourself, that's, that's better than anything else. The prices are going up on everything else, but don't really want to go up on the wages, you know, to help people to survive and make enough money to pay rent, making it difficult for the homeless to even meet those basic resources. Even if I get out there and I have done it and go to these apartment buildings, even if I'm making 18 an hour, 20 an hour, they still say I'm not making enough. So to me, it seems to be fixed. Again, feel free to pass on the question here, but mm -hmm. do you think that that might be different if you were white? I try not to look at it in that type of aspect. I've been through it before, plenty of times. I still go through it today, but I don't categorize things that way. Some situations, it probably is that way to me. Let me ask, uh, where are you? Are you staying in the shelter? Or where, where are you right now, I'm in the shelter. I'm supposed to be moving into an apartment today waiting for the people to call me today to pick up the key. I had to utilize some of the resources. I gave up my papers, my information. I did all the paperwork. And they told me within five business days that they would call me. Between today or tomorrow, I will be getting that phone call. It'll help me out a lot. Because I stay to myself. I don't socialize, you know, just to avoid conflict. I play my guitar, I like to sing, you know, whether I read the Bible, just want to relax watching television, old movies. I'll have my own space, you know, and just be to myself. Just sit at the window and look at the world, enjoy what God put before us. If I sit down and want to write a poem, 
I can write a poem. Sharing good things that happened in my life. You know, the bad things that I went through in my life and how it turned out to be good. You know, I can sit down and cook what I want to cook. I'm waiting patiently. You know, it's going to happen. <laughs> Hopefully today, before the day is over with, I should have that key to move in. And yes, I'm going to lay right down and go to sleep <laughs> before I do anything else. I'm going to lay down and go to sleep <laughs> right away. Can I ask just one last thing? Did you see it coming? Never saw it coming. <laughs> That's another thing. I never saw it coming. I never thought that I would be on this side of the fence. I've been on the other side of the fence where I've been with churches, going out there feeding homeless, you know, speaking, preaching, and all that stuff. Never thought that I would be on the other side to receive it. And when it happened, I was shocked. But I didn't let it get me down. I'm like, okay, you can get back up. It takes time, it takes patience. You just got to do what you need to do. As our interview wrapped up, Mr. Williams walked down the stairs and back into the common room at the St. Francis Center. He took a seat and resumed waiting for that phone call. The second interview is after the break. Stay with us. A frequent question we get about this podcast is, who funded it? Well, uh, we did. Which is to say that this is an independent production that was a labor of love. But our plan is to use this space to highlight some of the great work that sponsor organizations are doing to cultivate an elevated Denver. And if you're listening to this piece of audio, it means that there's room for us to share your story right here. We'll work with you to write a one to two minute story about the good work that you're doing and how it came to be. And then I'll read it and we'll play it right here so that more people can learn about your commitment to this community. That's good for you, and it's good for us, because your sponsorship will help this work and help us get it out to more people. If you want the details, just go to the contact page at www.elevateddenver.co and fill out the form, and we'll be in touch. Now, back to the show. The second of our neighbors that agreed to talk with me asked that I not use his name. He can be kind of hard to understand, but try to really lean into this to grasp what he's saying. He grew up poor and went from staying with his mom to relatives, and when I asked him how he lost his housing, he started with this. There was over there on uh, Children's Hospital over there. It was right over in that area. I forgot the name of that street. But anyways, right over in that area was a one-bedroom, and it was $1,000 a month. That was my first apartment besides staying with my sisters and friends. And I was working at the MC Suite back then, making sort of good money. Washing dishes for uh, 12 50 an hour, washing dishes. Plenty of overtime, so the overtime made up for my 12 50 an hour. When the COVID hit, they let us stay for almost six months, and then I got laid off my job. And then they called me back, said they wanted me to work <laughs> for less money for four days. That didn't make no sense to me. I've been there like seven, close to six, seven years. 
I said, no, I can't do that. Because I wasn't making ends meet. And then all of a sudden, they told us that we had to leave. I think we stayed out for six months before they told us to leave. It made me feel angry and discouraged. It made me feel lonely sometimes. Now I depend on other people. Irritating and upsetting. And that's why I think a lot of people that comes in here be angry because they think the world is against them, which the world is not. But I do be angry, but not at them. I just be angry at the situation. I'm a believer, and when, when things are not going right, I ask the Lord to either help me or guide me and just let it go and just go on by my day. And sometimes he do come through sometimes. He really do sometimes, not all the time. Sometimes he punish me sometimes. <laughs> Which that's true, he do, he do. But when he punished me, I had to realize, okay, that means I did something wrong for that to happen. And can I, uh, can I ask more about just kind of how you grew up? Because uh, you came out here with your mom. Was your dad around? He was around in the earlier years, but not in the later years. I think they separated in, I think when I was like seven or eight. So I grew up with just my mom, my sister, and brothers. I was next to the baby boy in the family, so I didn't get a whole lot of attention. But I got a whole lot of hollering at <laughs> I finished high school almost to the eighth grade, eighth or ninth, somewhere in there. Now I regret, I wish I could listen and went to school back then like she was telling me, but being hard-headed is stubborn. Now I'm paying the price for it. Well, I'm getting older, so I don't really expect too much more out of life. Just a job and a place, that's it. But they don't have to be a mansion and all that and millions of dollars. I don't even know what to do with the millions of dollars. See what I'm saying? Just something simple. That's it. I'm not a person that wants a whole lot out of life. Just the little things that makes me happy. day to day is, I guess up, I do go to the temp places. It's on a day to day basis, depends on how much work they have for that day. And St. Francis helped me with unemployment, where they can help me look for a job too. Then they have other little community places where they give you water and sack lunches and stuff like that. And that's how I survive because I don't have the money. Then when I had the money, I can do like buy me a pack of cigarettes. I want something special for myself because I worked hard for it, and then I would buy me something special to eat, like a chili burger or something like that. And then um, on nights where you don't get into the shelter, where do you sleep when you can't get in the shelter? Well, fruit time, I just slept on a bench. Then sometimes hide somewhere and just sleep there anywhere where I feel like I feel safe. Then I'll just take a nap. I really won't sleep, just take a nap. Cause you don't never know who's gonna run up on you or somebody rob you, hit you in the head or whatever. So just be like a little quick nap. Then when I feel the sun coming up, then I get up. But now I'm in a shelter where it's open 24 hours. But you leave in the morning time like I did this morning and I gotta be back at eight. Now, if I don't be back before 8 o'clock tonight, I lose my bed. 
And then I'm back out on the street, so I'm not trying to do that. And, and for somebody that's never slept on the street, like what, what goes through your head? Where you, your survival kicks in. And it wonders who gonna come or anybody gonna mess with you or the police gonna come or you gonna get robbed. I mean, it's a whole lot of things that goes in your mind when you're sleeping out there, you know. If somebody gonna come up and cut me or stab me or kill me. It's a lot you just have to worry about when you're out there like that. And some people have been messed with like that, you know. They get robbed and stuff being out there, but they get robbed because they're getting drunk. But me, I don't get drunk out there like that. But when I'm going to sleep, my mind be thinking, keep this out and to make sure and then I hear any footsteps or anything or I hear any voices, then I, I wake up. It ain't really safe, but it depends on whatever you're in and how far you're out and <laughs> it's, it's crazy. But you just gotta be careful when you're out there. Just be careful. I'm trying to get myself back on track, so I understand how the streets is. It ain't no joke. Yeah, because I'm getting too old. <laughs> I'm almost 60 when I'm getting too old for that. There's some people out there older than me still out there. I don't know how they do it. I want to get my life back on track, go back to a school where I can get more education, go to these little program classes like that. But see, you don't have time to be thinking like that when you're out on the streets. When you're out here, you're just thinking about fast money, place to lay your head, and, and that's it. I can't speak for everybody, but it's kind of sad. You never know it might happen to you or happen to anybody. Don't think you better because you got more, because you can lose that quick as you had it. <laughs> A lot of people don't know that. Don't think you're better than nobody else because you'll never know when you're gonna fall. Let's zoom back out for a moment so that we can see where we are. In the first episode, I said, in this series, we begin to explore the systems that result in people becoming unhoused what's being done to fix those systems and help those people, whether it's working, and if not, what else needs to happen so that all of our friends and neighbors can not just survive, but thrive. Let's take a moment now to consider what we've heard so far so we can begin to see our next step. Back in Graydon's episode, he talks about, you know, people ask him, you know, gosh, it must be so hard, so depressing. And he said that it's about affirming humanity, affirming each other's humanity. He doesn't experience it, is that he's going out and affirming the humanity of a person who's unhoused, but it's actually the other way around. He has his own humanity affirmed as he does that work. When we fail to engage the injustices of major economic disparity, allowing people to live in a way that they are unable to meet their basic needs, they're in that constant state of survival. There's, there's something about that that is dehumanizing to them, certainly, but to all of us who look the other way. Whether we look the other way or, or whatever we do, this is the reality of our society, and we all live in it, and to some extent benefit from it. That dehumanizes the winners as well. 
you know, I'm in one pool, there's a deep end and a shallow end. Kids are peeing in the shallow end and I think I'm not going to get dirty. We're all in the same water here. One other thing I want to mention about St. Francis, Graydon himself does street outreach, he mentioned. And that means he's going out and he's trying to find people and bring them to this service. Thinking about that in juxtaposition with other services that are offered, like Myra's case, where she had to go seek out and do a lot of work to find places to receive services. St. Francis is out there trying to find people. They're not expecting people to find it all by themselves. They're saying, we understand that you may not be able to do that. Let us come out. Let us help you. Let us meet you where you are. You just connected some dots for me there too, Jonna, because it's like, let's apply that same logic into workplaces. Could you set up workplace cultures to sort of do similar kind of outreach? Proactively having the conversations with folks, especially folks where there's some signs of trauma, of financial risk factors, so that they never have to be found by Graydon in a little nook and cranny in town somewhere. I think always for real change to occur, the environment has to shift. Do you know how many leadership and training and management programs exist? What if that were a component? How do you set that up as a manager and create that space to just check in? How's everything else going? Do you need any other support? And I want to just reinforce what you said earlier. We're not just thinking about a corporate workplace. We're thinking about the nonprofits. We're thinking about government. We're thinking about small businesses. We're thinking about education and schools. We're thinking about any place where people go to for a majority of their life. So the statistics on this are pretty clear. An engaged employee performs about double what a disengaged employee performs, just in terms of productivity, in terms of value created. Gallup has found that one of the key factors for whether people are engaged or not is whether they feel cared about as a person. So this isn't do-goodery. This is actually a better way for things to work. I think what you're really getting at is one avenue of solutioning around a root cause for how people fall into situations that as a society, we want to help them get out of. And at the same time, I don't want to ignore the fact that There are a lot of people who are not in the workforce. And how do we meet those people where they're at and also provide that same level of care, support, and belonging as a community in Denver? It's a great question. I go to the kids. It's always about the future and are they learning how to understand when they get feelings and emotions and things like that. Set them up with the tools and the skills to self-regulate and understand what's happening so they're not reactive as adults. We need to have a coordinated approach here that kind of identifies these great leverage points and tries to do them simultaneously. Multiple pathways for a common purpose. How do we look at it as a whole and look at it sort of as that life course approach where you're looking at those risk and protective factors that occur over someone's lifetime? And how do you start to mitigate the risk factors, and augment the protective factors so that trajectory can be more positive and towards this thriving place that we want everyone to be. It will take looking at the whole system if we really want to move forward towards a better future for our community. Or we might say an elevated number. I was going to say that. 
from here, we'd like to continue our exploration and begin to focus on the journey out of homelessness. And while this next step can look a lot of different ways for different people, we'll focus next on achieving the kind of stability that can help people to see past the next meal or the next night and begin to find a pathway back into stable housing. It's a temporary safe outdoor space. It's temporarily on this location and it's temporary for the residents as well. I think within an ideally designed system, a place like this would be like a 30 to 90 day triage space. It'd be a place for building initial connections. It would be a place for building trust, sort of doing some of that baseline work and then helping move people into longer term options as quickly as possible. That's not the system that we're in. Uh, You know, we have affordable housing unit shortage of around 87,000 units in Metro Denver. That's obviously most extreme for people at the lowest levels of income. And so we need places like this to sort of fill the gaps and take care of people. Episode five is a journey into what is known as a safe outdoor space. Join us. Thank you to Nathan Church, our editor, sound designer, and barista. Production was provided by Havy Pro Cinema. Elevated Denver is produced and critiqued by Tony Minardi. Strategy, planning, and social distancing are provided by Jonna Flood. The all-local music you heard in this episode is thanks to our music supervisor, Zach Warkenton, and features Onokan, New Mexican, and Sarah Slate. Thank you also to China Califf, who helped to develop the idea for this production. I'm your director and host, Nathan Havey. If you want to go deeper, you'll find background and extras at elevateddenver.co, like Colorado. And while you're there, jump on the email list so we can be in touch and hopefully get your help too. It's going to take all of us to build an elevated Denver.